All right. Welcome to Career Competitor <laughs> with Steve Miller. That's me. You guys know who I am, but who am I talking to? Yeah, so the voice you're hearing now is not the usual buttery English accent of Steve, <laughs> which is uh, always welcoming, but uh, uh, my name is Pat Fellows. I'm a, a friend of Steve's who... Uh, I'll give you a little bit. I'll try to do a brief history of us in a, in a moment, but uh, I thought the long and short of it, I thought it would be a great idea for somebody else to interview Steve to give you guys an idea of um, who it is that's been in doing all these interviews. Because I, I think that you know a lot of times we'll get, get into a show and we'll start listening to a podcast, and then we'll you know they're interviewing all these other people, and if you listen long enough, you get a glimpse into who the interviewer who who the host of the show is, but you might not ever get the full, the full story uh, and where you came from and how you got here. So I thought that would be, be fun to do a little bit about me. Uh, I met Steve through a mutual friend, Dave Geyer, when y'all were both coaches at LSU and swimming. And then when our friend Dave moved along, we actually started having coffee maybe every two or three weeks and talking and, you know, realized that we, we're similar friends as Dave and I were, right? Yeah, we see a lot of things the same way. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And so um, my background is uh, I've been a, an, an athlete with, with quotes uh, of sorts for most of my life, um, but not nothing, you know, nothing elite, just a, a regular guy that does things, tries to stay fit. I, I coach people uh, I'm in the race world, uh, triathlon, putting on uh, marathons, races and whatnot. And so it's still in my sphere, but I, I'm very intrigued by what motivates people and how to get the best out of people. And uh, that's kind of my tie into this because it's similar. It's what your show's about. Absolutely. Um, and so I thought it would be cool to kind of flip the switch on Steve and get him to kind of share <laughs> some of the things that um, got him to where he was as an athlete, who he was as, as an athlete. Some of you may not even know. I don't know how much of that story have you shared before? Uh, not at all. Not, not at all. all. That's yeah. why I love doing this because I like watching you squirm already. <laughs> uh, and, and then further down the road, you know, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go through some of the, the, the housekeeping things of who you are, where you came from and, mm. and, and this and that. And then, kind of dig into some other things that have been happening and, and where we are and where we're going from here and where absolutely. you're going from here. I totally. say we, we as in friends, we're all kind of going down yeah. this road together. So, absolutely. and how we're going to be involved in things. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's, that's kind of the format. Uh, we're talking about, we think this may be a little bit longer than mm -hmm. some of the regular episodes. So Probably. it may be two parts, <clears throat> two parts in a couple <laughs> different parts and uh, we'll just see how it goes, but uh, no pressure. We're not going to, put ourselves under any kind of constraint on what the framework should be. Mm. But, uh, you know, first I want to know, I don't, I don't, I know we can't, we don't have time for the full Steve story, but I, I guess I, I've thought about it two different ways. Um, maybe first talk a little bit about what your athletic career Starting as a kid, like, sure. you know, from when you start, let's say from when you were, I don't know, maybe you didn't start when you were five or six, but most <laughs> people I know who are swimmers did. Yeah. Uh, and so let's start there. So I, I got into swimming because my, my sister on a vacation one time pushed me. And I didn't like it. And I ran after her into the water and too late. Um, my parents realized I was going in the water, but I was swimming and the, there was no swim lessons. There was no learn how to swim. 
Um, my sister knew how to swim and she thought the best way to get away from me was to go into a place that I didn't know uh, what I'd be able to do. Uh, turns out I knew how to swim. And uh, so for, for, for me to learn how to swim at the age of four just by jumping in a pool and just moving around and making it work, there was a sign right there and then that I was probably going to be doing it for a while. And then we, we got into learning swim lessons and all that kind of thing. And the only reason I wanted to do it until I was probably about 11 years old was that I could be better than my older sister at something. That was it. Yeah. It was my only reason. And then I got to the age of 11, 12, and I grew about a foot in an 18-month period, and now I was towering over my sister. So really, I didn't have any excuse not to be better than her. So that was, once I surpassed her standard, so to speak, um, I suddenly decided that I actually kind of liked this thing, and I was going to go pretty far with it, and that was, my, that was my desire. But I was playing every sport under the sun at the same time. It's something that I've always been an advocate for is playing every single sport under the sun until someone turns around and says, hey, you can't do that anymore, which my dad did around 14 years old when he sat me down and pretty much said, listen, you're really good at swimming, and I get it. You want to be a football player, soccer for the American listeners, um, but at the same time, you're not as talented. And for a 14-year-old British kid to hear that he's not a talented football player, it's, it's about the worst thing you can hear at the age of 14. Yeah. Uh, it will crush your soul, And um, but at the same time, I got myself up up off the couch about 30 minutes later and realized that, you know what, that there's more to life than a, than a game of football. And so for me, swimming then became it. It became my life in terms of sport. Um, and it was all I knew in England until I was 20. And um, I don't know how much further you want me to go in terms of just Well, no, I mean, I, I think that's, it's interesting you say 14 because I, I, I grew up swimming as well, mm -hmm. about the same age. My mom actually taught lessons at a YMCA and I, I would go and, and, and take you know, just be involved and started competitive when I was probably the same age, four or five. Right. It's interesting though, 14 or so was when I was kind of, you know, it's time to get better at it mm. or do something else. Yeah. And, and I kind of did, did the same thing. Um, I do want to know about coming here. I, I want to know about, you know, what was that process? What made you decide to come to America to swim? Um, what were the alternatives, you know, sure. that you had to weigh? Sure. No, I, I, from the age of 18 to 20, I made the decision to work uh, part-time in a sports shop for 20 hours a week while I was pursuing my swimming career full-time without being paid at all uh, with British Swimming and got to a point where I was top 50 in the world Yep, in the 200-meter uh, backstroke. And for me at that point, I was like, okay, I'm good. In my mind, I was good, but I wasn't great. And I, was, I still wasn't good enough to be a professional athlete in terms of actually earning money for what I did. So an American scholarship made a lot of sense. Yep. And, and, and so for me, I was given a lot of good advice um, by a few people that said, listen, go get your degree, go get yourself set up for life, do it on somebody else's dime, so to speak, at a sure. university. And for me, that was just too good, a, a too, too appealing a prospect to, to turn down. So you went to North Carolina state. Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought. NC yeah. state. So, did you go, were you in college from 18 to 20 or were you just working and swimming? I was literally part-time just working and swimming. I was, I was living a, a 50, 60 hour week, um, making a part-time salary. Right. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, I have a lot of people to thank during that time in terms of allowing me to just exist. I yeah. joke, I joke now, but it literally was enough to exist. It was yeah. enough to be able to wake up every day, have meals, do the sport that I loved and then come back and do it all again the next day. So when you, when you got here, were there, what were the big differences between how swimming, 
not just collegiate, but did you mm. find that there were differences in how approaches to, to the training just, you know what I mean? With, yeah. Or was it very much a, you know, kind of going somewhere different and doing the same thing, looking at the black line? No, I mean, in, in terms of the physical component of it, there weren't a lot of differences, um, you know, in terms of just swimming, swimming is swimming. It's one thing that I think a lot of coaches don't like to hear, um, but it is, it, there's a, there's a simplicity to what we do in the sport of swimming that if you just see it for what it is, and you try not to reinvent the wheel with everything that you're trying to do all the time, um, there's actually a pretty simple model to get from A to B in terms of being getting better. Um, the, the one thing I noticed, the big difference, was that being able to swim in college in the United States was something that people almost took for granted from the U.S. Mm. You know, because because it, it's, it's you know that at the age of 12, 13, 14, when you are making those decisions like I made when I was 14 in England, you know that once you commit to something, you have an opportunity if you get good enough at it where you can go to college, where you can get a scholarship for it, whether that's- In England? A, it, no, 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 in, in, the US, oh, in the US. In the okay. US, you know at the age of 12, 13, 14, hey, if I commit to this sport, I can now go to whatever, uni well, not whatever university, but a university and be able to receive some sort of scholarship. And it's also known that there's, a, there's a, such a spectrum of that standard that there's probably going to be a college out there for you. You're going to find something that works for you. And the one thing I noticed from a lot of guys that I swam with was that there wasn't the appreciation for them swimming in college to the extent that I had. I was so thankful to have the opportunity to be swimming where I was swimming, to be on the scholarship I was on. And over time, I started to realize that a lot of the guys I was surrounded by, they just knew that this was going to be part of their future. This is something that they weren't necessarily going to have to work too hard for. And that's a, that's a really interesting part of the competitive component of, for me at least, because I'd only been surrounded by people up to that point that wanted to be right. great at what they did. I think that the first two things I think about is the number one thing I think of how American that sounds, <laughs> right? Right. But do you think that part of that was also... Um, that your perspective on that was maybe a little bit different because you would you had taken two years and had a job and yeah. and came a, a little bit older and had a little bit. I more was life a mature experience. freshman. I was a mature freshman. Let's put it that way. I I would look around sometimes and feel like I was ten years older than some of the freshmen as opposed to just two. Um, you know, and I think that was the one thing for me is that I was always around people five to ten years older than me, pretty much from the age of fifteen onwards. So for five years before I came to the U.S. I'd been, my, my maturation had been accelerated in a way that few 15, 16, 17 year olds would have been. So for me, when I got there, I was trying to see things professionally. I was trying to do things professionally, even though we were apparently all amateurs in the eyes of the NCAA. Right. Um, and, and so for me, you know, fast forwarding to when I was coaching, like the coaching model that I always had was that, listen, we're always going to approach things professionally, no matter what our titles may be in the eyes of whoever we're you know, being perceived to be. Um, so for me, like that was one of the hardest things for me at first was that I had a very professional approach to what I was trying to do each and every day, surrounded by a lot of people that one, I didn't feel were taking the opportunity as seriously as I was, but two, they were also in a position where they weren't as professional or wanting to be as professional as I was. And I say all this because I came in with a really big ego too. Yeah. I'm telling you, and, and, and this is this is why I'm kind of setting you up with all this because I needed to be taken down a peg or two, right? And and that was one of the things for me because because I came in with this professional mindset, 
I came into a, into a world that I actually didn't realize I needed. Like I needed college athletics more than I necessarily realized because here I was arriving thinking I had it all figured out sure. in terms of the professional model, the way we do things. But what I'm here to tell you is that like I have friends to this day that I'm so grateful for that were able to teach me, dude, don't take this shit so damn seriously. Like you, you are so serious about this that right. if you have a bad day, that it is the end of the day. Like it, it, it is, the, if you have a bad moment, sorry, it is the end of the day. If you have a bad moment in practice, it is the end of the practice. Right. You were so damn like high strung in the way you were approaching what you were doing that you were losing yourself within it. And I'm so grateful for those lessons too. And it's kind of this whole like six or one and half a dozen of the other approach because I'm sure anyone listening to this was just like, you were a professional, you were trying to be great, you were trying to be great. That's all true. But at the same time, the one thing I actually needed more than I realized at the age of 20 was an amateur, more amateur environment, an environment where I could be just reminded now and again that this isn't the end of the world. This isn't life. Right. When you're 20, that's when I think that that's when we all hit our peak of expertism. <laughs> and I say yeah. that jokingly, but I think of um, I think of myself when I'm 20 sometimes and I think of the the veracity of my opinions mm. at that age and how, and yeah, I think it's that age. I mean, you know, and, and maybe further than that, where you're just like, I'm right about this. No, how can anybody not see this? Mm-hmm. Like, this is the way. Yep. And I, I that's think what it was. I think it's an age thing. Yeah. That's you what know, it was. And, and 100%. It's, it's, it's ego too, but I mean, yeah. I, but it also, it's compounded by age. Yeah, I think. But the, the disappointing thing for me when I look back on that is, when I was in a professional work environment, like I was in the UK, specifically for the two years before I came to the US, those guys didn't take themselves too seriously either. I'd allowed myself to believe that I was coming from something that was bigger than the environment I was now going into. And it wasn't true. Even though the first six months I walked around that place, I know to this day, cringing, thinking about it, like I would tell guys what I was going to do. And there's nothing wrong in having intent. But I can see how that was received as well as like talking down to guys like, hey, I'm this and you're not this and this is who I am and you're not who this person is. Yeah. And it's kind of a shitty thing to do. Uh, you know, it, I, yes, again, 19, 20 year old, you, you, you're talking the way you're talking. There are some people out there that would say, oh, bring that into my environment. That sounds awesome. That sounds great. Ambition, you know, that, that drive 100%. Like I, I hear that side of it. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time for me, when I look back at, when I eventually sort of figured my career out to where I was my optimal self, which was around 22 years old at the end of my junior year, I had, ne- I had found the perfect balance of taking the sport seriously and respecting the sport to its fullest without taking myself too seriously. And that was a balance that to this day, I'm so thankful for to have the friends that I had in my life at the time that were able to tell me, dude, it's just a dual meet. It's just, it's just this, it's just this. It's not the end of the world. If we lose this dual meet, you can be pissed in the moment, but you can't be locked up in your kitchen for the rest of the night, you know, reflecting on every event that just transpired and why we lost the dual meet, like get over that part. It's a slippery slope though, right? Cause I, I, I kind of go back and forth with this, <clears throat> this idea that things don't matter as much as we, we, we make them. Mm-hmm that we, we, you know, we'll, we'll create that these things are bigger than they are in our own brains. Yeah. But I think that when you go to the other side 
and you go, you know, hey, man, it's no big deal. Like you kind of have this, hey, man, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, it's no big deal. The next thing you know, nothing's a big deal. And so there is a balance of finding oh, that because, sure. you know, I've, I still battle those types of things. Like you know, we, we had a conversation about going and, and trying to swim the English Channel. 100%. And I was like, this is not that big of a deal. Like, right. why am I going? Well, if nothing's a big deal, then nothing's a big deal. So you have to yeah. really try to do that. So what year did you get here? Uh, 2005. 2005. Okay. So by 2007, you, you, you're junior, you're swimming. How, did your, did you flourish as a swimmer here? Did you get better? Did you stay the same? I did. I did. I, you know, what's funny is I was battling a pretty significant shoulder issue, um, from the age of 18, 19, that would just always progressively deteriorate, um, throughout the remainder of my career. It's one of those things. If you get the surgery, you might not swim to the best of your ability ever again. So just push it off, push it off until you know you're done. And, um, and that's, an, that's another story in terms of just how bad that got. But at the same time, you know, it took me a year to figure out the recipe for success in terms of taking the best of the U.S. system and then being able to still incorporate the stuff that I knew had made me world of a world standard i'm not going to use world class that's a little too far but you know a world standard um at that point in my career so it was a lot of trial and error it was a lot of me just being patient and saying okay what part of this practice works for me what doesn't and being willing to talk to a coach about that sort of thing too but it took me a year it took me a year to actually learn how to improve i didn't improve in my first year my second year i started to see the improvement really small and then, like I said, I hit junior year 2007, and I felt like the blueprint had been established through those first two years, and I was ready to go on and, and be very successful. From what did you study while you were in school? Communication media. Okay. Um, so I am going it, to, it does kind of fast forward, but uh, when did you, right after school, did you start coaching swimming? I did without knowing it, I suppose. Um, I, I got my shoulder surgery the second I was done my senior year and I was bored one day and just kind of wandered by a practice and made myself available to grab a stopwatch and help. And then I gave some insight just because I saw something that I thought needed insight. And before I knew it, I saw kids responding to what it was I was sharing with them and I was hooked. <laughs> was it uh was it at the college level or was it at, uh, Yeah, it was college level. Was that yeah. at NC State? Mm-hmm. I, NC okay. State. And yeah. so you coached there for how long? Um, so I was a graduate assistant coach. So I was getting my master's degree in management um, while I was coaching for two years, pretty much full time, um, th- about 11 and a half months a year. I was coaching through the summer as well. Yeah. So if you can think about, and I want to get to, you know, I li- I've listened to quite a few of your episodes and you, you dig in deep into what it, what it means to compete. Mm. And I want, I do want to get to that, but mm. I want to, I want you to t- kind of tell me what, what was the, a memory from when you swam in college or, or younger yeah. that you still apply when you coach? Is there anything mm. that was just like one of those, holy, this is, this is important. Yeah. that I think when I look at, my my greatest ever swim for me as an individual, and the one thing, the one thing that the one reason I don't talk about my swimming career much is because I have like twenty stories from the world, my experience in swimming that I would rather tell about twenty other people than any sure. story about myself. Um, but to be honest, like if if I had to tell a story about myself, it was the summer of two thousand eight when at the end of that summer, 
I finaled at the US Open. I finished the year like 38th or something like that in the world in the 200 backstroke. Um, I broke the two-minute barrier in the 200-meter backstroke, which for anyone listening who's a swimmer will know at the time meant something, but it's evolved a lot since then. And um, for me, one thing I learned in, in, in that summer was that if you really have decided that there's something that you want to achieve in this sport, then you have to take ownership. For me, I took ownership that summer. I said, listen, if, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to make this monumental step towards what I believe is a world-class standard in my event, then I'm going to do something I've never done before. And I, I actually trained with a different coach that summer, one who I knew would challenge me and push me in ways that I didn't necessarily want to be pushed at times. And then I also even enrolled in a, because I had to add like a you know physical education credit that I had to satisfy my degree so i took up a running class and it was at 12 noon every day in the north carolina heat so 90 on average about 85 90 degree heat uh, at, at lunch every single day and so for an entire summer i was doing my my regular swimming schedule of about 21 22 hours a week and then i was throwing in this extra sort of four hours of running outside a week um at ridiculous times in the day and I knew that if I was ever going to have the just the, the tools to go and achieve something I've never achieved before, then this was it. This is my my last roll of the dice in terms of saying like this. I'm going to go all in on this summer and see what comes out of it. And that was the one. That was the lesson I got there. Was just like, listen, at a certain point, if it means enough, you'll take full ownership of what you've, of the accountability you're going to put on yourself. No coach made me do that. No coach no can. One, no one no <laughs> one told me. Yeah, exactly. No one no one told me that was what I had to do. I literally sat down and just said, What could I do? And then I just had this idea and I was gonna go ahead and do it. I could have taken a, a P elective in indoor tennis and, and right. just done nothing with an hour every single day. But I chose to do this because I was like, dude, if you learn how to run a, a sub five minute mile on a track imagine how strong your legs are going to be when you get to the end of that race. Yeah. And lo and behold, I fell over the finish line and went four minutes and 59 seconds and broke a five minute mile. And for me, that was just little chip in the back of my brain. I was like, you're going to get to the end of this race and be like, Hey, you have a superpower that you've never had before. Like this is going to be something you can fall back on in a moment when you need it most. And that came from within and that level of accountability. When you take that ownership as an athlete for a coach listening to this, if you can get an athlete to take full ownership of what they're doing and just come to you for checking in, that's when you know the relationships that is absolute most effective in my opinion. Yeah. I, you and I talk a little bit about coaching and, and, and kids and, and I, I coach high schoolers. You've mm-hmm. coached collegiate and, you know, a little bit older, I guess, post-collegiate too. So yeah, yeah. But, uh, but really the, the notion of motivation and the notion of getting pe- kids to do things and this mm-hmm. and that, and you and I both, something you said at the beginning was like, there are, uh, the workouts are simple. Like mm-hmm. there is no silver bullet workout. Like yeah. all these kids want these, you know, Oh, I saw this workout. And if we do this, it's we're going to be, why I've always shared my workouts. With people. It's like, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. everybody's like, Hey, will you give me a plan? I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You can have like, my entire season log. If you want to look at it, you right. know, that's it why I say to every matter. coach. Yeah. It doesn't matter, but it's 100% a mental game. Right. Yeah. Like, and I think that that is the biggest thing that as a coach <clears throat> that I've learned, um, not learn how to do it, but I've learned that that's the most important thing. Right. Yeah. Like, so, um, within that last you were just talking about you know having that extra you know from running knowing that you had more mm. right what is 
I mean, it's simple. What what does competing mean to you? Number one, from athletics, and then number two, how does that become Steve today? Sure, sure. Um, we talk about it every episode on the show, and here I am now, <laughs> having to answer the, to relive it, having to answer the question. I think it. it one thing I I do believe in, and I talk about it all the time, is listen competitive competitiveness is competitiveness and, and it is it is in all of us in some way shape or form if we can't think of anybody that we're competing against then just take a look in the mirror you're, you're competing against that person um you know so for me i was 100 percent my greatest competitor um when i was when i was swimming as much as i would look at other people and try to beat other people i knew the biggest battle i was ever going to have was convincing myself that I could do something. And for me, what I've learned between my athletic time and and post-athletic time is when I was an athlete, it was about convincing myself I was capable. It It was about doing the work to say, you did so much work, you were, you gave up so much that you have confidence. And I always say to athletes, like confidence is the greatest skill you can have when you're behind the block because with confidence, you know the work's been done. You know, otherwise you're just hoping for success, and we know that's never going to be a recipe for success just by hoping. So, for for me personally, as an athlete, I would define my competitive nature as convincing myself that I had done the work, proving to myself that I was ready to go, because then that would satisfy the competitor that I was going up against in myself. That hey, he's ready, he's ready to go. You need to trust him now. You need to trust that the work's been done. The post-athlete is more about the striving to be our best self. And and for me, that is the competitiveness that I approach life with now and that I embrace competitiveness with every single person that comes on the show. It's not just convincing yourself that you're capable of doing something. It's striving to be a version of yourself that proves that you're capable of doing. It's the, it's the process of going towards whatever it is you're trying to achieve, but doing it in a way where you're elevating and empowering yourself to have the confidence to go on and do it. And that for me is our greatest tool potentially in life from a competitive standpoint is how am I going to strive to better myself to therefore better the results specifically that I it, it is that I'm trying to pursue. So if, if in swimming, doing the workouts, mm. the physical workouts, or what fueled your confidence? What fuels it today? What fuels it today? It's it's the ability to get those checkpoints on a day-to-day basis where you feel that reinforcement of, am I aspiring to be my best self? Because for me, when coaching, I get those check marks every single day when I check in with an athlete. And I get back from them that they are continuing to implement the things that we've spoken about and work towards certain skills and, and, and be disciplined about whatever it is we've discussed. Like that's a really good checkpoint for me. Right. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm continuing to facilitate this process on their behalf. Therefore, I myself am making myself available. Therefore, I'm, belie- I'm implementing things that I believe in. Are you making yourself available to your athletes? That for me is a checkpoint in my day-to-day basis of, hey, I am striving to be my best self. Yeah. You know, so for, for me, 
those are the those are the big ones and it, and it, it, it we talk about it all the time on the show it, it goes beyond our careers you know do i do that with my wife do i do that with my children too you know those am i making myself available to them because that's a huge part of me considering myself striving for my best self on sure. a day to day basis too i i look at it i, I think it's um coming from somebody who is not an elite athlete so that's still like like my I still enjoy the the physical part and I know mm. you and I have spoken you're like you know I haven't been to a pool I'm not mm. and, and so it, it, I'm, I'm always curious about that as you know I mean I know you're a fit guy you still work out you do things mm. but that's not where you hit those checkpoints as much no, anymore for your no, confidence no, 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 and that, no. that's an interesting thing for me because um part of me still does that yeah um I don't think it's because I never did it at the next level mm-hmm. you know what i mean i don't think that it has to do with that i think it's just something that i get enjoyment from and i get fulfillment from and you know yeah. it, i always say for me you know working out or, or, or doing something it sets me up for the day mm-hmm. like and it just kind of gets my mind right right um you know i was thinking about you were saying that the you know the workouts give you the confidence and that confidence i think can lead to something that i think is super important what do you what do you feel like the role of belief is for athletes getting to that and non-athletes yeah. anybody right like and it, it because it's 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 not just confidence right belief right. is a like confidence when, when you said when you do the workouts it gives you the confidence that you know you're physically basically physically sure. capable sure but really that other side of it for the ones that go from here to here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's got to be this component of believing you know that you belong like this is where you know, I don't know. So yeah. I, no, no, no. I, I see what you, you're hitting here because at, at the same time, it's it goes back to the mental side of things. But I think this is where we as coaches can really get in our own way. Um, if we're so attached to the f- physical components of what it is we present every single day to these kids, then we're not actually instilling confidence in them. We're just telling them to listen. We're just telling them to buy into something that you believe in as the coach. Right. Well, that's not coaching. That's that's just presenting Giving work. You're just presenting work to do. Yeah. I think for me personally, what I love about saying things like we've been saying here, like this workout's just a workout, this workout's just a workout, because I'm not asking an athlete to invest themselves in the workout. I'm asking them to believe in me and my intentions for them. I have intentions for them because they've told me what their intentions are. They right. told me how good they want to be. So if, if you've told me how great you want to be and I'm going to facilitate those intentions by providing you this physical workout, but then emphasizing through each of these key details I see within the workout, why it is these are connected to these intentions that you, the athlete, are so attached to, then we have a successful relationship. Then we have this blossoming environment and this culture where everyone can coexist everyone can be on the same page because now it's like we are singing from the same hymn sheet in the sense in the sense of this practice this this practice is the hymn sheet but through this practice are the intentions of what we've discussed between ourselves through this practice is your personality and my personality have the they have the ability to come come out come through this workout it's not as simple as the x's and o's and i I think that's the you know, what you're talking about there, that belief, like an athlete can have, can be cocky and believe in themselves. An athlete can be incredibly respectful and just believe in their coach. And 
the question is how do you get everybody believing in the process in the system in the environment that has been created that's the key that's the that's the thing that i think is the great coaches have been able to figure out over the years when you have this harmonious environment you know that there's this belief in every component and so it's not about believing in oneself for me it's about in believing in the environment believing in the culture because then you're a, you you are an environment of belief then everything is belief we're all believing in what we're doing and how do we not therefore believe in ourselves once we come from an environment like that well and the glue that holds together is is trust right like yeah. that's the thing that we're like right the third piece that we're really exactly. not and I'll be honest, about like, and, trying again, to build, like, and trying to figure out how to build that trust with right. athletes and, and, I, and young kids is yeah. it's incredibly challenging. Totally, and I think that's the one thing where I've worked with a number of coaches over the years, and they've really struggled with me as a personality. I'll be honest, like they've struggled with being around Steve and Steve having a rapport with athletes, and athletes going to Steve and feeling really comfortable about just talking about swimming or talking about whatever it may be. And they get frustrated because they think that's, we talked about it before, respect. They think it's just simply respect. It's, it's one person respecting a member of staff more than they respect whoever this may be that's getting a little butthurt about the fact that this athlete didn't go to them. Yeah. It's not respect. It's trust. It's trust. It's trust. Yeah. It, it's because I'm willing to tell a story to said athlete about myself where I messed up, where I failed where I wasn't my best self. Because you know what happens to an 18 and 22 year old? They make mistakes. What happens to a 50 year old? He makes mistakes. Yeah, Everyone makes mistakes. Right. So as as coaches, if if you want any hope in ever building trust with an athlete or, and this isn't just coaching an athlete, this is life. Like if we want to build trust, what are we willing to give up about ourselves in order to make us someone worth trusting in? And that's, that's always been my thing as a coach. I don't have it all figured out. I don't. If a coach hands you a workout and says, this is the answer, they're lying to you. 100%. They're lying to you. It's not the answer. Like we, we, when we had coffee last time, I think I, there are, it, it, I, said, I think I said there isn't the way, there's ways. There's ways. There's not the answer, there's answers. Yeah, And absolutely. it's never one. If, if, you can, if you can think that you have the answer, when you're working with someone that you don't even know on a personal level that doesn't know you more importantly on a personal level, what are we doing? Like this isn't, this is never going to be successful and it maybe there will be moments of success, but it's not going to have long-term success. Yeah. It's not a recipe for success. And I think, you know, belief, trust, however you want to put it, all of it comes back to, okay, whoever's facilitating the environment, whoever's overseeing the environment, what are you willing to give up about yourself? And once you do that, once you give up a little bit about yourself, once you make yourself a bit more vulnerable, known, understood to who it is you're working with and talking to, well, now we can actually start to find more of a level playing field and we can start to be a lot more harmonious in terms of what we're, we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, I mean, guy, it, it's such a <clears throat> trying to figure out that how to, how to build that trust. You know, it's every single, because every single kid, you know, again, I, I coach high schoolers and middle right. schoolers. They so make it's big even, mistakes. It, 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 it's, it's even, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't think that it's harder. Um, right. It's just different. Yeah. And they have less, even less perspective. Yeah. And are less able to have perspective just mm-hmm. because of being younger. Right. Um, but yeah, man, just teaching, well, even adults that I coach, like 
teaching, building the trust so that they believe mm. is like, is the game. Well, at this point of the conversation, Pat and I decided to take a short and well-earned coffee break. So we're going to do the same with you guys. Part two is coming for you in a couple days. But before I let you go, firstly, I hope you are enjoying this somewhat unique version, this unique episode of the Career Competitor Podcast. One of the main reasons I've decided to do this, as you'll find out in part two, is I've made the decision to go fully into fully embrace career competitor as a life as a business we are an llc now which means that i am now providing coaching services across all areas if you are someone that is simply looking to become their optimal self if you are someone that believes that they have greater qualities greater things that they can provide to the world that you work within it's time for us to talk i want to offer you 30 minutes free time 30 minutes of my own time for free to sit down, chat, learn a little bit more about you in terms of what it is you feel you're capable of, the areas within your life you feel you're still missing out, and we'll come up with a plan. We'll start to discuss a long-term vision for you, and then we'll see if we can start working together long-term as well to see if we can find that optimal version of yourself. Podcast at gmail.com. That's the email you need to reach out to me immediately right now 30 minutes free time 30 minutes how can that possibly hurt shoot me an email career competitor podcast at gmail.com we'll schedule 30 minutes so that i can learn more about you and start to help you in your journey to reaching your optimal self in the meantime keep up the great work with whatever it is you're doing and like i said join us again in a couple days from now for part two of this Spotlight on Steve episode of Career Competitor. Until then, guys, keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. Bye for now.